0: has already been mentioned on uh, several occasions where uh, we're still trying to get our heads around what it means to uh, serve the Lord, worship the Lord in this season that we call the Lenten season. And, and some of us feel that this is a very difficult time in order to, to, to celebrate anything. It seems like uh, the best way to celebrate Lent is, is to be somewhat dour and, and depressed but what we're trying to do in, in our sermon series in the way that we're worshiping uh, in this season is to recognize that the tension that comes from living the Christian life. Yes, Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. But in this season of Lent, we walk with him as he prepares to bear his cross on our behalf. So it's this strange amalgamation and tension of of recognizing that, that we serve a risen Savior and yet we're walking with him in this season as he prepares to lay down his life for us. And so in the course of this 40 some days of Lent we realize that these are kind of somber days but we realize that every Sunday in Lent actually is not considered Lent because each Sunday in the season of Lent is not a time for fasting. It is a time for feasting, and feasting we will. So it's a time to celebrate the resurrection in the midst of realizing that we are walking along with Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. And so we have that that tension of, of those two truths, and we've been looking at some pretty tough texts over these last few weeks, and we're just wondering what it's like to feel the kiss of Jesus how, how can we understand suffering in the midst of, of our Christian lives? And, and we enjoy our celebration together, and yet we know that when we go from this place, there are a lot of things out there that aren't right. Uh, bridges fall apart in, in Florida. There is a huge refugee crisis in the world. There are people starving to death all over the world. There are difficult things we need to come to grips with. And how do we do so as followers of the Lord Jesus in this important season when we share in the glory of the resurrection and yet we walk along with Jesus, that way of sorrows to the cross? So this morning we'll be reading from Psalm 44. I would encourage you to stand with me as we uh, hear from the Lord from the pens of the sons of Korah. Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the people, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground rise up come to our help redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love let's pray Lord we we confess that you are sovereign and in control of all that you've created but there are times that shake that trust when terrible things happen that affect us all in very deep ways. And on these occasions, we search for a solid place to stand. We pray this morning that you would help us in these times and to prepare us for these times. We want you to hear us. But most of all, we want to hear from you. So, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So, what do we do when Chicken Little is right and the sky has fallen? How do you make sense of out of what seems like senselessness or unnecessarily vicious events around the world. In many ways, we in North America, as comfortable as we are, we're sheltered from a number of of these kind of events, but sometimes we are not. It was Tuesday, about mid-morning, I was uh, in my study at the church in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island and all of a sudden the, the youth pastor shows up in the doorway and his eyes are as big as saucers and he says to me you need to come and see this and so I went out into the secretary's office where all the staff had gathered around the television and we watched as the twin towers came down It was September 11th, 2001. We lived on the East Coast. New York was just a long day's drive from where we were living. We weren't entirely sure what was going to happen in the aftermath of 9-11. So what do you do when the sky and the towers are falling? A little over a month ago I had the opportunity to uh, visit Yad Vashem It's the Holocaust Museum in in Jerusalem Now it just so happens that the day before I had eaten something that hadn't really agreed with me So that entire following day I was nauseous and as I wound my way through this heart-rending display, I realized how appropriate that was. How else can, can you take in that, that horrendous event and, and not be nauseated? A few days later, We were able to visit the grave of Oscar Schindler. He's buried there in Jerusalem. This was one who was able to save hundreds of of Jews from the horrors of the death camp. And it seemed like the nausea returned. How do we respond when we experience such overwhelming evil, when disaster strikes, and when many human lives are lost and seem to be just like useless collateral damage. Well, when that happens, we go to Psalm 44. We actually did that a few years ago. Psalm 44 is known, actually, as the Holocaust psalm. This is the psalm that is read in Jewish gatherings when they come together to remember the Holocaust This is another one of those psalms written by the sons of Korah, which we've called the Blues Brothers. It's written after Israel has suffered a major military loss to another nation, a pagan nation. We're not even sure which one. Pick one. Doesn't matter. They've been routed on the battlefield. And back in those days, when you went to war... Not only did did you fight for your God, but you assumed your God was fighting for you. It was was a power issue. And so if if your army was whooped by their army, therefore their God was bigger than your God. it's kind of like when you're you're a kid and and you're back in the playground. And and you use that that you know, that taunt of when I like my dad can beat up your dad, that kind of thing. Well, that's the way it was in those days. So Israel has been whooped soundly, and and they're just wondering like, how, how do we handle this? They're licking their wounds, wondering how God could have let this happen, and and in the midst of their sorrow, and their, and their suffering, and their confusion, they turn to God, as should we. And they pour out their hearts to God, as should we. And they start by praising God, even in the midst of their sufferings, as should we. And we start praising him by saying to him, you've been good to our fathers, those first three verses just list the various ways that that God has has been on their side especially to their forefathers. And we can't help but notice how how prominent God is in in this section of the psalm and actually through the entire psalm. These people are giving praise to God for all that he has done for their forefathers and In Psalm 44, it's primarily referring back to what God has done to bring them into the promised land. And that whole episode of conquering these pagan nations is from beginning to end. It's a God thing. You're the one, O Lord, who performed these miraculous deeds You're the one that drove out the nations before our fathers. It was your right hand, and it was your strong arm, and it was the light of your face that did it. It wasn't them, it was you. You fought for them, and they won, and they prevailed. So even in the midst of suffering, we look back and we see the faithfulness of God to those who have gone before us. And we can think back of the the era in the early days of Briarcrest with heroes like Dr. Hildebrand and the Whitakers and, and how God carved this campus out in the middle of the wilderness. And we've heard all about that. Our ears have heard all these stories of God's faithfulness in the past. But it's more than just ancient history. Not only have we seen God at work among our fathers and our ancestors, we've seen God at work in our own lives. And so we say to God, you've been good to us. And the next few verses, that's exactly where the psalm goes. The same focus on God is there all the way through. And As you read this portion of the text, these verses, you'll notice it's it's so focused on God because you see the word you and your all the way through because they are addressing God directly. Notice how they they go, "'You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob.'" And these worshipers are are giving a a, a litany of things that that God has done in their own lives. In the midst of this horrendous disaster, they can think of those times when when God has been gracious to them. It's important when we're trying to deal with with this wide-scale disaster around us, whenever that happens, it's important in those times... When it's the easiest to suffer and wonder why God has deserted us, it's important for us to remember that not everything is bad. There are points of light even in the darkest sky. But (laughs) it's at this point that the psalm really takes a bit of a nasty shift here's where the other sandal drops. Maybe we were waiting for this. And so when we look at God to say he's the one who has brought all these good things, what happens when things go south? So if it's God who has brought us to victory, when they uh, are defeated, whose fault is that? Well, when you use that kind of math, it's God's. So in the next few verses, we say to God, why have you turned against us? Now you'll notice in this section that the focus is still on God. But something drastic has has changed. Because in the past verses, he's responsible for their victories. And now he's on the hook for their defeat. He's the one who's responsible. And it's not just a matter, okay, God, you didn't show up. It's not just that God went AWOL. It's that God has thrown them under the bus. And they can't figure out why. They went into the battle assuming that God would give them victory as he had in the past. And it didn't happen that way. So they, they cry out to God. What's up? <laughs> how, how, how could that happen? And, and the emphasis still remains on God because now, God, you've gone AWOL and you used to defeat our enemies, now you have turned on us. You used to shame our enemies, and now you have turned us into laughingstocks. You used to delight in us, and now you have sold us for a song. When disaster strikes we tend to blame God. When things are good God's good. When things are bad eh, what's up with God? Even our insurance tells us that natural disasters should be understood as acts of God. That's just a little depressing. It's natural And it's normal to think this way. But not everything that's normal is actually right. But it's still a normal reaction. And even though there's a little voice somewhere in in the back of our heads that's, that's whispering to us, it's probably not God's fault. It's still natural for us to wonder what's up with God. And sometimes, when this snowball gets rolling, it's, it's hard to get that thing stopped. And so the logic starts to develop like this. When things are good, God is good. When things go bad, it must be God's fault. And even further, when things go bad, it must be God's fault, and it can't be our fault. So in the next section of the, of the psalm, we say to God... What more can we do? We've done everything we possibly can. And the shift here in the psalm is like getting hit upside the head with a hammer. We go from the emphasis of you in reference to God to the emphasis being on us. Listen. All this... Has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us. With the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now there might be a couple of thoughts just kind of entering your mind at this moment like it's one thing to say god it's your fault but it's something again to say well it's your fault god and it's not mine you see that, that that just seems to crank it up a notch or two so maybe in in your mind that thought is well how on earth can this people plead innocence that they have kept their side of the covenant when Their entire history is one list after another of idolatry and disobedience. How can they say that with a straight face before a holy God? Well, to start with, they're not claiming to be perfectly sinless. They're just simply claiming that they have been faithful to the covenant. They're claiming that they are in good standing with God. And there is a difference. You can be in good standing with God and still sin, but when you sin, you go to this God and ask His forgiveness in repentance, and He forgives you. That's part of what it means to be in good covenant relationship with God. And that's all they're claiming here. They're not claiming sinless perfection. And I guess the other matter is the innocent do suffer from time to time, do they not? Ask Job look around. Sometimes the innocent do suffer. It happens. Now it doesn't make it any easier to understand but it it still happens and there are no easy answers here. Now the other thought that you might be entertaining is is this. These, These people must not trust God very much if they are quick to blame him and then plead innocence. Surely they they can't trust God very much if that is their response. I would say actually the opposite is true. You don't act this way unless you really do trust God. Let, Let me try to prove this to you. So those of you who are just kind of in the early budding stages of your romantic relationship. Or for those of you that have a memory that's long enough to go back to when that first happened. Centuries ago. (laughs) In those early days, in in the fresh flush of romantic love, when you're looking into the eyes of your newly beloved, and he or she does something like super boneheaded, what do you do? Nothing. Nothing. Because you're nervous. You don't know that person very well yet, do you? And you're not willing to go out on a limb and say, Whoa, that was dumb. Because what are they going to do to you in return? You have no idea. Right? So you're not going to be completely honest with that person because you don't trust them. When you have been married to the same person for over 35 years, all that dissipates. I can blame Peggy for everything. It's awesome because I trust her and I can say you're doing this wrong and that was not right and this was not right because I trust her. And then she just takes me aside and explains how everything is actually my fault. And it's back to normal. <laughs> but we do it that way because we've grown to trust each other. And here we have this, this people that are struggling to figure out what's gone wrong. Why have things gone south? And they say, well, it must be your fault because it can't be mine. That's because they trust God enough to say that to his face. Isn't that awesome? It's a little nerve-wracking for us because we're not used to that. We're a little polite. And, you know, that may not ring true to us, but we watch these people and and, and they're expressing this. They're pouring their hearts out to God because they trust him. Where else will they go? So let's face it. Uh, Sometimes we are simply just the authors of our own disaster. It's our fault. We've done it. We're reaping the consequences of our own actions. And on those occasions, we just simply go to God with repentance, ask his forgiveness, and he graciously forgives. But there are those times when things befall us and others that we know and love where we we can't figure out the causal relationship with that. They haven't really done anything wrong. They are innocent bystanders and they are suffering grievously for nothing they have done. What do we do in those circumstances? What's left for us to do when when there is just amazing amounts of, of horrendous suffering and we can't figure out what is happening We can't put our finger on anything bad that we have done necessarily, and we're wondering where God is in the midst of all the confusion. What's left for us to do? Well, there's only one stanza left in verses 23 to 26 Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Probably doesn't sound a whole lot like an answer. (laughs) It, It sounds like Israel is still just a little cheesed. At, uh, at God and what's going on, but something has changed. And what's changed is the focus. The focus has left me and us, and it has returned to God. Laying flat on the ground, sucking dust, their bellies in the dirt, they look up to God and they say, Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now here's where we need to learn just a little something that you may not have known, maybe you have, before you came. We need to learn a little Hebrew. Some of us know maybe a few Hebrew words like shalom, maybe a couple others. One I think we need to know is this word chesed. Can you say chesed? If If you have a cold, this can be very helpful for you. Chesed. All right. So, chesed is God's steadfast, loving, caring commitment to his covenant relationship with his children whom he loves. It's covenant faithfulness. It's God's willingness to be faithful to the agreement he has made with us, his people. And in the end, all the sons of Korah can do is say, We're hooped without your chesed. And you'll notice, no longer are they trying to uh, claim that, that they're in charge or they've kept the, the covenant and all the rest of this stuff. They've already made that case. And when it comes right down to it, it's it's not their capacity to, to keep the covenant that's going to bring them out of this. They know their only hope of salvation is God's commitment to the covenant. Salvation will not come from our side of the covenant relationship. It will only come from God's. Only his steadfast love. Only his Blessed Chesed will save us when we're in the midst of of these terrible disasters. So, God's people are simply just throwing themselves at God's mercy and they're saying, redeem us. Buy us back. Earlier on in verse 12, they were complaining that God had sold them for a song. And now their only hope is to say, God, buy us back. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. They know that's their only hope. And the psalm ends with the worshipers turning their eyes to the skies. That's it. Final stanza. where we leave it I think there's another stanza for followers of Jesus there is one more stanza and it shouldn't be a surprise to us because Carl read it just a few minutes ago this is the final stanza of Psalm 44 what then shall we say to these things For us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 44 for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. The sons of Korah, the Blues brothers, have heard with their ears what God has done. They just want to see with their own eyes that very same God in action in the midst of their suffering. But thanks to this last stanza, it's not so much a matter of just being able to hear with our eyes, or hear with our ears rather, and see with our eyes. We've been given the amazing privilege not so much to see with our eyes, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We not only have heard with our ears, but we get to touch with our hands. And taste with our tongues the redemption of God, according to his hesed, according to his steadfast love, He has bought us back. And so this morning we conclude with with this great invitation to join him around the table where we remember what Jesus did for us and we celebrate his presence among us realizing that indeed in the person of Jesus Christ God has redeemed us. He has bought us back at a price so costly that we cannot even imagine it. But he has paid the price to bring us back to him. And this morning, he calls us simply to gather around his table, taste, and see, even in the midst of deep suffering, that God is good. Amen. I'd invite those who are serving communion to... Join me, and we're going to spend the uh, remainder of our time together uh, around the table.